Deal, you glad to be here? Amen. I'm glad that you're here. Welcome again to the Lord's house. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. I've been in a series for the last eight weeks on Praise the Lord. That series is not over. Uh, we're going to continue to learn how to praise the Lord. I've got several uh, more great topics that I want to share with you. But today I'm just going to take a little break from, from not from praising the Lord. Right? We, don't, we don't take a break from praising, but from preaching on the subject. And I want to speak to you out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. However, at the end, there's going to be a tie back in to worshiping and praising God because for a Christian, it's just the life we live, right? That's what we do is, is praise the Lord. But let me tell you what we're going to talk about today. This sermon is entitled, uh, The Cosmic Battle Between Good and Evil, Part 2. You might say, well, we didn't get to hear Part 1. Well, I preached that on Wednesday night, all right? Uh, so for the few of you, for the 12 of you who are here... <laughs> I'm being sarcastic again. Hey, slap my hand. Now, the prime timers were gone Wednesday, and uh, so we kind of had a low crowd Wednesday night. But I did preach sermon number one of the cosmic battle between good and evil. It was from Genesis chapter 3. And today I'm going to follow it up with uh, cosmic battle between good and evil, sermon number two from Matthew chapter 4. I say, well, Brother Will, where in the world is this coming from? Well, let me just tell you that story real quick. Uh, back in December, I was invited to go to Welch College, which used to be Free Will Baptist Bible College in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, this, for this coming week to preach their Bible conference. It's called Forum 18, and uh, so I was asked to come and preach at the Bible College. The, the topic that they gave me was kingdom living in a fallen world. Now, let it soak in just for a little bit. We, we do live in a fallen world, don't we? I mean, this world is, is, is so fallen, it is so sinful, and yet we are called to live for God in a fallen world, right? So, boy, that clicked with me, sounded fantastic. Uh, I immediately knew what I was going to preach from. I had those, those sermons, uh, I've been working on them since December, and, and they, I was locked and loaded, man. I was ready to go, and then last Sunday night came, and during the night, last Sunday night, uh, I woke up and I was in a frantic because God was speaking to my spirit and saying, you know, I know you got those sermons ready, but here's what I'd really like for you to speak on at Forum 18. And uh, it was a combination of these two passages, Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation, or in, in Matthew chapter 4. And, and here's my thinking. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall of man. Uh, the devil came and tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and they felled that temptation, and thus sin entered into the world. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus faces Satan on his own turf and is tempted by the devil, but Jesus wins his temptation. And so that's what I'm going to do this next week at the Bible College, talk about this cosmic battle between good and evil, the failure on Adam's part, and the success on Jesus' part. And tonight, today, you're going to get to hear the one from Matthew chapter 4. Uh, I was working on this the other night at the dinner table, and I uh, asked Zane, Zane, what do you think? Uh, the cosmic battle between good and evil or duking it out with the devil? What, what title do you like best? And, and he likes duking it out with the devil better than the cosmic battle. What do y'all think? You like duking it out with the devil better? Uh, today we're going to duke it out with the devil, all right? Here it is. Matthew chapter 4, 
beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the old translation, King James. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward a hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him unto the holy city, and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of those kingdoms. And saith unto him, All these things I will give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only, and him alone shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take the, the word of God and, and make it alive in our souls this morning. I pray that as I try to speak it on the outside, that you would speak it into our hearts. May you receive the praise, honor, and glory. And may today we say yes to Jesus. This I pray in your name. Amen. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, temptation has been a constant, unrelenting part of our human existence. Men have tried to avoid it and to resist it with self-denial and self-inflicted pain to, to make themselves uncomfortable and presumably humble or even by isolating themselves from other people and from physical comforts trying to escape from or avoid temptation. But no person throughout history has ever found a place or a circumstance that can make them safe from temptation. Benedict of Nursia in 480 B.C. sought an increase of grace and an exemption from temptation by wearing a rough-haired shirt. Now just think about this. He wore a rough-haired shirt. I can remember when I was a little kid uh, for Easter, my mom went and bought me a suit. It was the most itching suit I've ever had on in my life. The pants itched me to death. I couldn't stand wearing them. And as soon as I got home, man, I peeled that suit off and I threw it in the trash. But she made me wear it again and again and again. Benedict of Nursia wore this rough-haired shirt and lived for three years in a desolate cave where his scant food was lowered to him by a cord. Once he threw himself into a clump of thorns and briars until his body was covered with bleeding wounds, but he found no escape from temptation. 
It followed him wherever he went and whatever he did. Others have tried to overcome temptation by, in effect, denying it. Jovinian, a heretical 5th century monk, taught that once a person was baptized, he was forever free of the devil's power and temptation. Jerome, his most uh, outstanding opponent, commented, well, baptism doesn't drown the devil. (laughs) And it doesn't. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the most monumental and mysterious battles, spiritual battles, of all time recounted for us. It is the personal confrontation between Jesus Christ and Satan. The encounter occurred immediately after Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, which in terms of his kingship was his coronation. Look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 3. And lo, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That coronation was also an ordination. Jesus was to be a particular kind of king. The Son of God. So when Jesus emerged dripping wet from the waters of the Jordan, echoing in his conscience was coronation. I am to be a king. But also the ordination. The way to my throne will be one of submission and obedience. Physical and emotional suffering. And then immediately after that baptism, with its coronation and ordination, Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. When you go over to Mark chapter 1 and read this same story, Mark uses a different word. Mark tells us that the Spirit of God hurled Jesus into the wilderness. Some translations use the word drove Jesus into the desert. There is about that word an energy and a mystery. The Holy Spirit of God, think about this, the Holy Spirit of God thrust Jesus out into the Judean wilderness. And in doing so, he was sending him out to the very turf, the very terrain the very domain of the devil. The Jews understood that Satan himself had built something of a headquarters in the wilderness of the Judean desert. There was a demon of the desert, they believed. His name was Azazel. He ruled over the wilderness as this demonic presence. And so our Lord Jesus right after his coronation and ordination, was hurled out to the very turf of the enemy to meet him on his own ground and to do hand-to-hand combat with the devil. You know what I have to say about that? Wow. Wow. It's interesting in my mind to compare the temptation of Jesus to the temptation of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, this is where these two sermons actually came from, in my mind making this comparison. So let me just do it for you very quickly. Adam's temptation versus Jesus' temptation. The first Adam and the second Adam. Adam's temptation was in a perfect place. The Garden of Eden. A propitious place. 
There was absolutely nothing wrong in the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. Jesus' temptation, however, took place in a very difficult surrounding, an inauspicious place. He was in the desert. Adam's temptation occurred as he was crowned the founder of the human race. Jesus' temptation occurred being the founder of a new humanity. Adam's temptation occurred when he was robust in health, energized from creation. I can't even begin to imagine what Adam looked like or how he felt. Can you imagine just being newly created as a grown man and having the breath of God breathe into your nostrils the breath of life and you become this living soul? I mean, the guy was perfect. On the other hand, Jesus' temptation came after a 40-day fast in the desert. How many of you have ever fasted for 40 days? I see no hands. How about four days? Huh? Maybe a couple. How about four hours? <laughs> Most of us can't even go four hours. Jesus was gaunt. His physical body was at the weakest point it had ever been when he was tempted. Adam's temptation took place when the tempter, Satan himself, had not yet perfected his craft in temptation. He was a rookie. This was his first gig as being the tempter. However, Jesus' temptation occurred after the tempter had been practicing his art for thousands of years. Makes a big difference. Adam failed. Jesus won. Amen. Jesus, Jesus was victorious. Therefore, if we want to do kingdom living in a fallen world, we need to look to Jesus, our great example over temptation. His victory really has two levels of truth to it. That which was unique to him and that which is universal to all of us. Because Jesus was Son of God and Savior, these temptations were unique to Jesus. Now, let me just do a little quick time out and tell you, the devil knows an awful lot about you. And I emphasize the word awful. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay? He has a dossier on your life. The devil knows which buttons to push when it comes to personal temptations for you. And the temptations that I will face today from the devil are customized for my personality. And it was the same way for Jesus Christ. These were personal, unique temptations manufactured for the Son of God. We need to understand that. These were His temptations. But also because He is perfect man, they are universal for all of us. There is a lesson to be learned that applies to us today. So let's do that. In the first temptation of Jesus, we find that number one, in Christ, we can win over the temptation to take the shortcut. Let's read about that in verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, the devil said, If you really are the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered back and said, It is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now church, listen to me very carefully. We totally misunderstand this passage if we see it as some kind of struggle with some kind of impersonal principle of evil. Because the New Testament knows nothing of that. In the New Testament, there is not a temptation. There is a temptor. There is not a lie. There's a liar. There is not a seduction. There is a seducer. And Jesus, in the wilderness, was in this personal, confrontive conflict with a real adversary, the devil. You must also understand that he was not some green-eyed, cloven-hoofed creature smelling of fire and brimstone. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, if it would have been in modern day time, I think he would have just come out of GQ. He was, he, the devil was looking fine, man. And he was a person who stood before Jesus in the wilderness wanting to discuss some of the finer points of systematic theology with the Son of God. You see, if the devil had a passport, on that section that is marked distinguishing characteristics would be written the word None. Because the devil is a master of disguise and deceit. And it appears that he wanted to give Jesus some advice about his own mission. How that Jesus could do his ministry more easily and more effectively. How did he do that? Well, he brought into question the word of God. Notice what he said to Jesus. If you really are the son of God. Now, I've really contemplated that this past week, and I think there's one of two ways you can interpret it. One way is the way that I naturally would do it. He, he was kind of double-dog daring Jesus. You know, you know double-dog dares? How many of you are a sucker for a double-dog dare? I mean, just a dare won't do it, but if somebody double-dog dares you, I mean, bring it on, baby, it's coming. I can almost hear this as a double-dog dare from the devil. If you really are, I mean, if you really are the Son of God, let's see it, Jesus. Let's give a little proof to it. But I really don't think that's the way he meant it. I really think he was calling into question the Word of God. Just like he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden, he put into question the Word of God, and he suggested that he knew an easier way for Jesus to live his life and to do the will of God. And then he gave Jesus that very plausible way. Verse 3, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, then why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Now, you need to understand that the floor of the desert was covered with these little round stones that looked just like the loaves of bread that Jewish women made and baked in outdoor ovens. And to look at one of these stones is to see the plausibility of one of them just morphing into a loaf of bread. Now you got to get it. you got to understand this. This would fulfill both an immediate and ultimate need for Jesus. Immediately, it would fulfill his hunger. Jesus was hungry. 
I mean, he had just gone 40 days without eating anything. And if he turned one of those stones into bread, he would have something hot and satisfying to eat. But not only immediately would it satisfy his hunger, ultimately he could choose an easier, quicker, and more efficient way to do the will of God. You say, how so, preacher? Well, in Jesus' day, the majority of the people went to bed hungry. They simply didn't have enough to eat. But here's what they knew. Every Jew knew this. When the Messiah comes, when our Messiah comes, two things are going to happen. Number one, he's going to show up in the wilderness. That's where he's coming from. And number two, he is going to bring manna down from heaven. Well, guys, you, you tell me, what better way for Jesus to begin his messianic ministry? He can fulfill both an immediate need for himself and ultimately conclude his ministry. No pain, all gain. It's as if the devil, in a religious debate with Jesus, was saying, Now, Jesus, let's be realistic. This is a world that likes results. It's result-driven. Do you really think, Jesus, that you're going to spend three years with those peons from Galilee and then they're going to fulfill your mission? Jesus, I've been around those guys. They're losers. <laughs> Here is an efficient shortcut. Here is a quick and easy way. No pain, all gain. Again, this was very plausible for Jesus. Listen to me, this was his temptation. Yet to every one of us, this temptation shows its face in an incredible numbers of ways. A kaleidoscope of temptations for us to take the shortcut, for us to do it the easy way, even when it comes to serving God. Whether it be in school or in business, at home or at church or in relationships, Instead of grinding it out and doing it right, we have the temptation to take the shortcut. Jesus' response in verse number 4, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You see, church, the word that Jesus had just heard cut off any shortcut. It was a word that said, you will be king. That is your coronation. But you will suffer because of obedience. That is your ordination. And church, listen to me. Here is the point. Only when I am obedient to the word of God will I be victorious over the temptation to take the shortcut. And I guarantee you, no matter what form it takes, we are tempted to take the shortcut every single day of our life. But guys, let me tell you, it's God's will, God's way, according to God's word. Number two, in Christ, we win over the temptation of the spectacular. Now, this is amazing to me. Look at verse number 5. Then the devil taketh him to the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, just cast yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. But Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord Thy God. 
So temptation number two, Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, we really don't know what this was. Some suggest it was this projection jetting out from the temple. We do know that Josephus in his early Christianity history book said that when you look down from it, it was so high that it made you dizzy. Some speculate it was as high up as 700 to 1,000 feet in the air. And it was poised over the court of the temple where every single day the zealots caucused waiting for the coming of the Messiah to free them from the bondage of Rome. And here comes the suggestion from the Satan, from Satan. Jump, Jesus. Just, just jump off of here. And float down like some celestial super saint. You're going to land in the group of a people who are already charged up and ready to say, Here is our Messiah. Woo! <laughs> Yeah, woo. Let <laughs> me tell you, it was plausible. You, you tell me, what better way to start an earthly ministry than with something like this? You talk about spectacular. Man, wouldn't that be awesome? And it is as if the tempter was saying, now Jesus, again, let's be realistic. You plan to go to Galilee. Get up every morning at 4 o'clock. Pray for four hours. And then go and preach in these dusty little Jewish synagogues, touching leprous people? Really? You plan on touching blind eyes and making people be able to see and healing people? Jesus, they're going to like you at first, but then they're going to turn on you. They're going to reject you. They're going to crucify you. Why go through all of that when all anyone like you has to do is leap from the pinnacle of this temple and float down into a group of people who are ready to hail you, Messiah. <laughs> wow. I'm you, he, he got my attention right there. I always wanted to fly. Come on, people, wake up, man. Are you with me? In fact, the devil even quoted Scripture. Did you know he knows the Bible? Huh? Verse 6 is a partial promise from Psalm 91. But here's the promise. problem. He omitted part of the promise. The part that says, yes, God will guard you in all of your ways as long as your ways are his ways. But he left that part out. Jesus countered. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, understand, church, this temptation is unique to Jesus. But on the other hand, it is universal to all of us. For the church and for the believer who wants to grab the unusual and give ourselves to the sensational, to poise ourselves for the extraordinary and for us to do the unheard of rather than the common, quiet, Daily discipleship that we ought to be doing. Amen. Churches can become interested in the dazzling <laughs> rather than in discipling. We can give ourselves to that which glitters rather than to genuine Christian growth. 
Back in 1971, the first publication of the Wittenberg Door came off the press. It was a publication that was a satire of the evangelical world. Every month they would give a special award. I think it was called the Green Weenie Award. It was given to a church or some kind of evangelical organization that yielded itself to the nature of the second temptation we're reading about here. One month it was given to an organization that called itself God's World. They were attempting to raise $40 million to purchase 100 acres and develop a theme park to rival Disneyland and SeaWorld. And they were going to call it God's World. Another month it was given to a nudist colony in Florida. They featured Bible study in the afternoon. The next month it was given to the Church of Swing Dance in L.A., Y'all remember swing dancing? What they do, they would meet in the morning and worship, then they would have lunch, and then they would have swing dance lessons. The next award went to an evangelist who in the pulpit set himself on fire to demonstrate eternal perdition. Those of you rockers, who was it? Is it Jimi Hendrix who used to light his guitar with lighter fluid here on the stage? Yeah, this, this preacher did it to himself to demonstrate hell. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. I said first service, that sounds like something a youth pastor would do. So <laughs> take it for what it's worth. He is preaching tonight in Greenwood. That would be the place to do it right there, Nathan, I'll tell you. That just came out for some reason. Sorry about that. Hey, a lot of things are coming out this morning. I don't mean to come out, but anyway, you just take it out, it comes. Understand, these, these Green Weenie Awards were poking fun at the same kind of temptation that Jesus faced. And that is the temptation by hype and hysteria, by the spectacular to bring about the kingdom of God, rather than... By a personal encounter and a faithful discipleship that characterized Jesus' ministry and should characterize our own ministry. Church, here's what I've learned, lo, these many years of following Jesus. Growth in discipleship happens when we grind it out day by day. It doesn't come with hype and hysteria. It doesn't come with supernatural things. You know, I, I, I could wish that all of a sudden Jesus would just turn me into this supernatural kind of saint. That I would be above temptation. In fact, let me tell you, there was a time early on in ministry when, when I was just a student both at, at Hillsdale and at Southwestern Seminary where I would just daydream about, about preaching and things of, of the ministry and I had some ill-conceived ideals in my head. I thought that someday in my future writing sermons would just become easy and natural and I wouldn't have to spend hours agonizing over a text and writing a sermon. That they would just kind of poof, poof come out. It hasn't happened yet. And I've been doing it for 34 years. I had, I had this misconception in my mind that the longer I lived for Jesus, the stronger I would become. And I would get to a point where I would be exempt from all of Satan's temptations. 
Brother, that hadn't come either. And can I tell you, it hasn't gotten easier through the years. It has become more difficult. And can I th- discipleship just doesn't happen like that. You don't get saved one day and then automatically the next day you're a super saint. It comes after hours of reading the Word of God and praying. I mean, you just take a snapshot of this picture in Matthew chapter 4 and you can see this being fleshed out. What had Jesus just been doing for 40 days in the desert? He was fasting. He was saying no to the flesh so that he could say yes to the will of God. And now the devil pops up and says, Jesus, just do, just do the spectacular. I mean, for somebody like you, all you have to do is just jump off here and poof, it's, you're a super saint. Jesus said, no, it doesn't work that way. Nor shall you tempt the Lord your God. The adversary came back a third time, not so indirectly and not so religiously. Number three, in Christ, we win over the temptation of power. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. This time, just like he did with Eve in Genesis chapter 3, he stopped raising questions. In fact, this time he made a frontal attack. He took Jesus to this high mountain. The word in the Greek New Testament suggests that in some way he pointed out to Jesus one by one all of the kingdoms of the world. All of the wealth, all of the power, all of the military strength, all of the legal accountability. He had all of these things pass right before the face of Jesus. And what you don't want to miss is this. He did not want Jesus to abort his mission. He was just saying, Jesus, make me your partner Instead of your enemy. And I'll help you. We can do this thing together. I will help you control the controllers. I will help you overpower the powerful. And church, listen, make no mistake about it. It all looked very plausible to Jesus. You think this through. Think about this. If Jesus made the God of this world his ally... Rather than his enemy. Then he could Christianize the world. And there would be no more persecution for his disciples. No missionary would ever be butchered in third world countries. No church would ever be misunderstood by politicians or governments. If he could just ally himself with the God of this world. All future struggles could be avoided. And you are mistaken if you do not believe that this pulled at the very heart of Jesus. That this appealed to his very instinct. Because Jesus had grown up in Galilee. 
Jesus had seen the Roman soldiers take Jewish boys and make them fight the Parthians when they didn't want to fight the Parthians. Jesus watched as Jewish soldiers would come in and take little Jewish girls to the, to the temple of Tiberias and make them serve as temple prostitutes. And to be able to stop all of that and to be able to seize the total power of Rome and the world I'm going to tell you, it was tempting, and it was plausible. In fact, I believe it was so tempting to Jesus that he gave an abrupt word back to the devil. Depart! Away from me. Can I suggest to you that that the same kind of temptation can show its face in the temptation for us today To marry together the things of God with the things of this world. Some people call that compromise. And I see church, I see Christian people doing it all the time. I see churches doing it all the time. Jesus said, no, I will do God's will, but I will do it God's way. And God's going to tell you, this temptation can become so very personal. Satan comes to you and me and he says, you know what? You want it. I know you've been watching. I know you've been looking at this. I know you've been desiring this. Whatever you, you can have it. Anything you want, I'll give it to you. Go ahead, take it. You want power? I'll give you power. You want wealth? I'll make you rich. You want success? Go ahead. You can have it. You just do it my way. That's the kicker right there. The devil says, you you do it my way. Here's the interesting thing. Because of Jesus' submission and faithfulness to God's last word for his life that happened in chapter 3, verse 17. Because of his faithfulness to being submissive and obedient to God, he got everything the devil promised plus more. Because he did not turn those stones into bread. For 2,000 years, we have been taking bread and breaking it and saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been feeding us with his spiritual bread. Because he did not leap off the pinnacle and float down in a dazzling display of the spectacular. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And there he makes intercession for sinful people like you and me. Because he did not submit to the power of this world. On the other side of the resurrection. He was able to say all authority has been given unto me. Go and preach the word of God. Because listen to me. Jesus knew what you and I better know. That the devil can't make good on his deals. And what he promises, he can't deliver. All the devil wants to do is destroy you. I didn't say this at the conclusion of my first service, but I think the Lord's telling me to do it now. I've told you parts of this story before. 1994, 
I was living in the parsonage at, at, uh, at Oak Park Church in Pine Bluff. I will never forget this night as long as I live. It was probably 2 o'clock in the morning. Angie and I were in bed in our bedroom. Whitney was our only child at the time. She was, she was just a little, little girl, a little toddler, and she was in her bedroom across the hall from ours. And all of a sudden, 2 a.m., it was Sunday morning at this point, I just I woke straight. I, woke, I was awake. Have you ever been in a dead sleep and you're just awake now? And my eyes were as big as silver dollars. I knew an intruder had come into our house at 3010 Orange Street. I knew somebody was in that house. I mean, I knew it. All the hair on my back was standing up. And man, I was just, I was scared to death. Because at that time, I did not own a gun. Now, you really need a gun in Pine Bluff, let me tell you. All I had were a pair of nunchucks. Bruce Lee nunchucks. I had, I had taken Taekwondo when I was younger, and that was my weapon. I had it right under my bed. I did. And so I got up, I had my nunchucks. And I went through that whole house. First of all, I went to Whitney's room, and she was sound asleep. Went to the spare bedroom, went to both bathrooms. Went to the living room, the kitchen, the laundry room. It wasn't a very big house. It didn't take me very long. But I looked through the whole house. All the windows were shut and locked. All the doors were shut and locked. There was nobody in that house. But let me tell you, something was in there. I was standing in the, the kitchen dining room area. It was a combination area. It was a room probably about as big as this stage. And, and I was just standing there confused, scared to death, didn't know what was going on. And then, Jason, I just felt it. I mean, I felt it. It was the presence of evil. And, and, and again, at first I was a little bit confused, but then, then it started speaking into my spirit. I did not hear audible words, but this is what this demonic spirit was saying in my kitchen at 3010 Orange. I am here, Will, to destroy you, your ministry, and your family. So understand the devil did not come to tempt me that night. He came to destroy me. And you can sit there and say, well, yeah, yeah, I don't believe that. I really don't care if you believe it or not. Because I was there. And it happened. And as scared as I could be, I did the only thing I knew to do. I started quoting scripture. See, my mind went to Matthew chapter 4. I knew that when Jesus met the devil in the wilderness, what did he do? He spoke the word of God back to him. I did not do what Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. I didn't dialogue with the devil. I quoted scripture. I claimed the blood of Jesus. We had a little table in that that kitchen dining room area and I just walked around that table for I don't know it could have been 30 minutes it could have been two hours I don't know how long it was but I just continued to walk around it quoting scripture claiming the blood of Jesus I walked down the hallway and spoke the word of God I did it over Whitney I went in there and I prayed over Angie I went back and I kept going around the table quoting the word of God claiming the blood of Jesus and all of a sudden the fear left me And I became angry that the devil had come into my house 
and wanted to destroy me and the ministry God had called me to and my family. And I got real mad. And in boldness, I told the devil to get out of my house and not to come back. Woo, man. Is the devil real? <laughs> you better believe he is. And he is not your friend. He wants to destroy you. He still wants to destroy this ministry that I'm a part of. And I can tell you, he still wants to destroy my family. Because he wants to destroy me. And you. Choice is yours. You can do what Eve did and Adam. Dialogue with the devil and give in to temptation. Or you can follow the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. All of us are tempted. Deal is, you don't have to sin. Do you hear me? You don't have to sin. There is victory over temptation. You can live for the king in a fallen world. And Jesus 